so much. And tomorrow, uh, each one of the chapels will be different content. So if anybody is inspired and wants to come, uh, all of them will be different, as will pretty much everything we're doing. Um, there's so much to say. And so we're trying to get as much in as we can. I'm going to start now with a Bible verse. Hopefully we recognize it from John 14, 6, where Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The second sentence is known as a claim of exclusivity, that he is the only way to the Father. So if there's any confusion, Jesus is the only way. And I say that not tongue in cheek, because what we know from polling this year from Christians is that the majority of people that identify as Christian think that you don't have to go through Jesus to get to heaven because God is so loving that he wouldn't send, send you somewhere other than heaven even if you don't believe in Jesus. I think there's many paths to heaven. This is one of the kind of big picture problems we're seeing inside of Christianity in America is that it's not rooted in what Jesus said in the first sentence is that he is truth. We are seeing truth under attack in our culture. We're seeing it under attack inside of the church, inside of Christianity. People just don't know truth. And the reason that should matter for us a lot as a Christian, Jesus said in John 8, 32, that we would know the truth and the truth would set us free. You cannot be set free from truth you do not know. And you cannot be set free from truth if it doesn't exist. I would point out as Christians, one of the biggest things we ought to be paying attention to and defending above everything else is truth. Why? Because if there is no truth, the gospel does not matter. Because if, if truth becomes subjective, well, that's fine for you, but for me, see, I remember watching a couple weeks ago and, and there's a commentator on CNN, his name is Don Lemon. And he says, well, my job as a commentator is to present my truth. My truth as a black man in America might be different than your truth, but this is my truth. And I thought, wait a second, there is no your truth, my truth. There's the truth and everybody's opinion right? Truth does exist, but we live in a culture that says things are subjective or things are relative. There is an objective truth, right? God is objectively true. This is a revealed standard. Jesus, we can go through scripture, but when we live in a culture that does not know what truth is or doesn't even care what truth is a lot of times, right? Because there's a lot of people we are seeing around us that don't care what truth is. And we even see this on the media. One of the things that I am so grateful for that there's very few things I will ever say that I'm really grateful that this president has tweeted. But one thing I'm so grateful that became a trending hashtag on Twitter was hashtag fake news. And I was not grateful for it because it's criticizing one side or the other, but rather grateful that people begin to finally acknowledge that not everything you read online is true. That not everything a news outlet tells you is true because this is largely what has happened. And one of the problems is we've, it's, it's like we've just forgotten that news outlets are also businesses. And as businesses, they want to make money. So what they do is they want to promote what is sensational, not always what is true. Why? Because what is sensational drives the likes, the clicks, the ads, the shares, and right helps boost their revenue. This is what they are doing. They're not always trying to be honest. And we also live in a culture today where when you look at different news outlets, I don't care. What your outlet is, we are seeing almost every outlet, they care more about their side winning than they do about what's actually true. And I don't care if you talk about Fox or CNN, because there's people on both sides that do it. This is the challenge today. In fact, even if we look at the unrest we are seeing in different cities in America, it is boggling to me that we are seeing destruction of cities. Oftentimes are things that are not factually true. Three weeks ago in Chicago, they said there was an unarmed teenage boy who was killed by police officers. So that night, they go through the city and they're destroying buildings, destroying property. The next day, come to find out, oh, so when the body cam footage was released, it wasn't an unarmed teenager. It was a 20-year-old who was shooting at the officers. Officers returned fire, struck him. He did die, but it was not police going and arbitrarily shooting unarmed teenagers, which is what was said. But here's the point, is we are now having media promote or spread information that is factually untrue and it is leading to great levels of unrest because we're not being honest, we're not being truthful. And even before that we were burning cities down, right? Before this was a thing, what it used to be is several months ago, which feels like years sometimes, but several months ago, there was this movement to say, hey, we need to tear down all of these statues of people who were racist, statues, things that we don't like. Now, 
let me just preface as we get into statues for a second that uh, we have at Wall Builders had the opportunity to leave set, several trips over to Israel. If you've never been to Israel, go. It's amazing. It is so cool in Israel. The trip of a lifetime. It will change your perspective forever of the Bible. Uh, it's walking in the Holy Land where Jesus was, where the disciples were, where King David was. It's amazing. One of the things, if you know the Bible, David had a son, Absalom. Absalom was the one that tried to violently overthrow and take the throne from his father. Right outside the old city of Jerusalem, there's this massive cemetery. In that massive cemetery, the biggest like monument thing in the cemetery is a monument to Absalom. Now, let me just point out, Absalom is not a hero on any level whatsoever. And could be fair to say, right, who built this and why did they build it? Maybe David, because we know, right, after Absalom died, David's heart was grieved and his commander had to come to him and say, hey, you need to quit feeling sorry for your son because we lost people in this battle protecting you and your kingdom, right? You need to change your perspective. What's interesting is we don't really know who built it or when it was built as far as historically. Even the people in Israel don't know this. But it might be worth asking, why don't they tear it down? Because Absalom wasn't a good guy. And what they will tell you is that, well, it's fine to leave it up because it just lets us tell the story of Absalom and how bad he was. It's interesting. You don't have to tear history down or symbols down if you're just honest about what they are and who they were and what they did. But what we're saying is, no, 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 tear it all down. And it got so crazy. The, the statement at first was, we wanna tear down racist statues. That was a statement at first. But it quickly evolved past that, or at least we changed the definition of what racism was. For example, at the end of the Civil War, Abraham Lincoln is the guy largely credited with helping end slavery in America. At the end of the Civil War, there was a group of former slaves who had been emancipated and they raised money themselves and they built a statue to Abraham Lincoln and this was to honor him because he had helped free them. And so even in here, it shows he has a chain, but the chain's been broken and he's now free. And, and Abraham Lincoln is reaching down to help him. This was something that former slaves did to honor the legacy of Abraham Lincoln. The first one was done in Washington, D.C. Then they had a duplicate that was built in Boston. But again, this was done by former slaves to honor Abraham Lincoln except the, the mayor of Boston said, well, I'm pretty sure this is a racist statue because it's a white man looking down on a black man. Literally, and you're like, okay, hold up a second. This was former slaves are the ones who had this built, are the ones who paid for this monument, and you're saying it's racist, it doesn't make any sense at all. Or you can look at things like the, the monument in Cleveland, Ohio, to Union soldiers who were fighting against slavery, and the monument to the Union soldiers in Cleveland, Ohio was desecrated because, well, they're white people from history, therefore they must be bad. Therefore they must be pro-slavery. Or you can go to things like Ulysses S. Grant, who if you're not familiar with history, he was the guy when Lincoln first started the Civil War, Lincoln had a very hard time finding a general who would be aggressive enough trying to win battles because so many of the military officers on both sides, it, before the Civil War, we were one nation. And, and so all these officers had gone to West Point, had gone to school together. They knew each other. They were friends. So a lot of the officers didn't, didn't really want to fight each other. And so Lincoln said he had a really hard time finding an officer who would actually go and fight. And Grant was the guy who was like, I'll kill all of them. I never liked him anyway. You let me have him. That was Grant, right? He wasn't a really sweet, nice guy, but he was the guy who led the Union Army helps win the Civil War, helps the, the slaves get their freedom, and then he becomes president. As him being president, almost all of the Reconstruction legislation that gave all of the equal rights to black, almost all of that happens under his administration. He is the guy in charge, helping bring equality to the blacks, but they're saying, no, 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 he's a white guy from the history, therefore he must be bad. Okay, he was not a good guy in every regard, but certainly he's not the guy that's the racist guy that's being accused of, but even the Mass 54th Regiment. The Mass 54th was the black regiment that Frederick Douglass was the guy helping raise this regiment and it was largely black soldiers. And this regiment had to train more than any other regiment because 
At the time, some of the sentiment was that the black man was not equal to the white man in combat. He wasn't as brave. He wasn't as heroic. He wasn't as courageous. So they had to train longer and harder than any other regiment. They had to be the most disciplined. Interestingly, when they finally make it on the battlefield, so many men from the Mass 54th received the Medal of Honor for their courage in the battlefield. They showed up and they were amazing at what they did. They were heroic. They were brave. They were courageous. This monument was desecrated, had BLM sprayed on it. These were black heroes. Like it doesn't make any sense. But what we quickly saw was this is not about targeting something that everybody could agree racism is wrong or bad or evil or slavery wasn't good. We can agree with that. That's fine. We agree totally on your page. But we went from saying something was bad that we all agree was bad. Now what we're saying is it's not about just racism. It's about we hate America and we hate American history, and therefore all of America needs to be destroyed. This is where you see it very become, very much becoming part of a Marxist movement. In Marxism, it says you need to destroy the status quo so you can replace it with something different. So even a guy like Frederick Douglass, former slave, becomes an abolitionist. How in the world are we tearing down his statue and monument? Because... He's part of American history and American history has to be removed so we can do something different. We need people, this is the idea, we need people to hate America. And so even with the founding fathers, right? You, you have guys like Caesar Rodney. Caesar Rodney is only known for one thing, riding a horse at night. And I mean that literally. He was a guy from Delaware. Delaware, when all the states came together and they're voting to whether or not we're gonna separate from Great Britain. We needed every state to vote in favor of this and Delaware had two delegates there. One delegate voted in favor of separation. One delegate voted in favor of staying part of the union. And the guy who voted in favor of separation, Caesar Rodney had been appointed but couldn't make it. So the guy who voted in favor wrote Caesar Rodney because he knew he was gonna be in favor and said, hey, you have got to get here. We are trying to vote, but if, if, if we don't vote, if Delaware's not in favor, then we won't be able to separate. Get here so we can vote. He got on a horse and rode all night to make it there in time the next morning, because they had tabled it with the motion, make it there in time the next morning that he actually voted. The reason we were able to separate from Great Britain was because the vote of Caesar Rodney. This is the reason on the quarter for Delaware, every state has a quarter. The quarter of Delaware has a picture of Caesar Rodney riding on a horse because this was the thing he became famous for. Nothing else, but he was famous for riding a horse and so we became a nation, but they said, oh, no, 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 no. He's an old white founding father, therefore he's bad, he has to come down. Like, you don't even know who this guy was or what he did. How do you know he's bad? Because he's part of American history and we're trying to remove that. This is why guys like George Washington, who unquestionably, America would not exist without George Washington, without his work in the revolution. And at the end of the revolution, remember, his military officers said, okay, we don't trust Congress because they're ridiculous. We want you to be the leader. Let's just make you king. And he says... We, we, we just fought to get out from under kings. We don't need a king. We need to trust the process. We need to let this thing happen. He turns down me a king, which he could have been because his military would have made it happen by force. He turned it down. He then is the guy chosen in the Constitutional Convention who helps, we actually, when we write the Constitution, he's the guy who helps make all of that possible. Without his leadership, it wouldn't have happened. He then is the first president. After two terms, he steps down. He says, if anybody serves longer than two terms, it would be like they were trying to be the king. We don't need a king in America. He set the precedent of a peaceful transfer of power, which in the era of the monarchs was not a normal thing. He literally is the reason we have a nation that we have, but today people say, no, he's bad because he was a white founding father or even Thomas Jefferson, who when Jefferson drafted the declaration, Jefferson wrote that all men are created equal, which if you remember the abolitionists who fought against slavery, what they quoted more than anything else was a declaration saying even Jefferson acknowledged all men are created equal. And today people say, well, well that can't be true because he had slaves. You've missed a lot of the point. There's no other governing document before this in the history of the world, none in the history of the world that makes a statement that we are not going to be divided based on gender or class or creed or color. This was the first governing document that recognized that there is a God and God made us equal. And that's the reason for this. And today, even people misunderstand the notion of Jefferson's position on slavery. If you read the original draft of the Declaration of Independence, Jefferson's longest grievance in his original draft was an anti-slavery grievance. 
that when that was actually brought and presented before the Congress, Jefferson said there were two states, much to his regret, that opposed the grievance, South Carolina and Georgia, because up to that point, they hadn't tried to end slavery in their states, so they weren't interested in ending it, so they removed that grievance. John Hancock said they could only include in the Declaration what was unanimous, and so that grievance was removed. Jefferson tried to end slavery back in 1776 in America. Okay, so, so even this notion, there's just so much more to his story than we know, but here's the point, is that we look today and what we largely hear from this modern movement is that, well, America's bad or, well, the founding fathers were evil. This is the argument that we hear. So I wanna walk through several thoughts to give us some better ideas and context. And especially, I wanna go back to the Bible. We talked about earlier this morning, the Bible is always the place that we should turn for guidance, for instruction. We always wanna go to the Bible. And one of the great examples from the Bible is King David from the Bible. And King David is a hero from the Bible. If you think about King David, what, what are some of the things that made him exceptional? The Bible says that he was a man after God's own heart. It does not say that about anybody else. David is the only one that says he was a man after God's own heart. That's kind of significant for David. Now, we also know David was this amazing warrior because he killed a lion. We know he killed a bear and we know he killed at least one lion and one bear because before he kills Goliath and Saul calls him in and Saul's like, I'm not sure that you're ready. And he said, no, no, it's fine. I've already killed a lion and a bear. This giant will be no different. Also remember, historically, it's believed David was only between 14 and 17 years old when he actually kills Goliath. What's shocking to me then is that means he had to be killing lions and bears when he was 10, 11, 12, or 13 years old. Okay, I'm from Texas, grown up hunting my entire life, and we really enjoy our guns. Now, if the government's listening, I've sold them all. I have none left. But (laughs) for anybody else, right, just allegedly, if I still have any guns, you give me one of my rifles and you put me in the woods with bears and lions, and I will still be scared with my rifle. David had a stick and a rock, and he was killing lions and bears. This dude was an amazing warrior, right? Like legitimate. This guy was courageous. He was brave. He was a great warrior. And we also know he was an amazing worshiper. We, we, we see the story in the Bible where King Saul was troubled by this evil spirit, and David plays his harp, and, and Saul finds peace. David writes the majority of the book of Psalms. So, so we know David was this amazing warrior. The Bible shows us some of the really good aspects of King David. But the Bible tells us also more of the, the human side of David. It shows us David as a father. David as a family man, and it shows us some things that aren't really great from David. Because if you remember, Amnon, Adonijah, and Absalom, Amnon was the one who had a crush on his sister and then forcibly knew his sister. And I'm saying that way because there's young years in the room, right? This is a very, very bad guy. David doesn't show or say anything to Amnon. Absalom gets angry finding out what Amnon did. Absalom goes to Amnon and Absalom kills Amnon. Absalom then gets angry at his father, says, my dad's a terrible leader. Absalom decides he wants to take the throne from his father. He works to violently overthrow his father. And and if you remember the story, he talks about that Absalom was riding on his donkey. He gets his hair caught in a tree. David's men use him as javelin practice and that's the end of Absalom. Well, then Adonijah shows up. And if you read the story of Adonijah, the very first verse of Adonijah, it says, Adonijah, comma, the son whom David never corrected, comma, and it continues. Now, I want you to think about that for a second. As a parent, how many times are you like, hey, hey, buddy, hey, we, we, don't, we don't do that. Like, how many times a day, right? Like, hey, sweetie, hey. Like, this is just normal parenting. And you're telling me as a parent, you never once, never once offered correction or instruction to your son, you are, you are a terrible father. In fact, arguably you are the worst father in the Bible, like the worst, okay? And I know there's other people in the Bible who aren't great fathers. And so sometimes people wanna say, well, I don't think he's as bad as this guy. Okay, I think he's the worst father in the Bible, but even if he wasn't the first, he at least comes in a runner up, okay? Because this dude was a terrible father, but the Bible shows us a lot of the human aspects of David that weren't really great. And then the Bible goes even further because it talks about a time when kings go to war and David stayed home and looked out from his balcony and saw a woman of unusual beauty who was bathing, right, Bathsheba. And then they have the affair and she gets pregnant. And he goes, oh my gosh, what am I gonna do? So he brings Uriah back and says, hey, you should go hang out with your wife, y'all go together. It'd be great. And Uriah's like, I can't leave my men in battle and do this. And so... David says, what am I gonna do? Let's get him drunk. 
So get him drunk. He still won't go home. David's like, okay, uh, just send him out to the front line. Retreat everybody else back. We'll let the enemy bump this dude off. David literally has this dude bumped off. David has him murdered. David is an adulterer and a murderer. And here's what is significant is the Bible tells us this part of David's life as well. When you look biblically, when you look historically, the Bible tells us the whole story. It tells us the good, the bad, the ugly. Here's why this matters. Because the Bible's not just focusing on one aspect or the other. If the only thing you knew about David was the fact that he killed Goliath, you don't know the whole story of David. But if the only thing you know about David is that he had an affair and and then murdered Uriah, you don't know the whole story of David. The Bible tells us the whole story, but what happens in culture today Culture today looks and says, wait a second, David did a lot of bad stuff and, and well, we can't celebrate people who have done bad things. This is modern culture. In fact, this is even a lot of Christians today who have the same argument. Now, let me just point out, if this is your standard, you will never have a hero ever again, unless it's Jesus and he's a great one, right? But apart from Jesus, there's only one perfect. So, so, so how do we navigate in this new world? And let me just, tell you as Christians, we have to see things differently. We have to have a different perspective. We can't be like what Paul warned about in in Romans 12. We can't be conformed to the pattern of the world. We have to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And one of the things that we should be thinking about is in Romans 3, 23, it says, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Everybody, what does that mean? It means everybody's a sinner who needs a savior. And modern vernacular, it means everybody is jacked up and needs Jesus. Everybody, now some people, are more jacked up than others, right? And if I was up here just picking, like I could come up with some, right? Some of you look like you really need Jesus. I'm just saying, no, I'm kidding. But really you do. The reality is all of us are jacked up and need Jesus, every one of us. But if that is our starting place, our starting place is nobody is perfect, everybody is messed up, then how do we look historically? How do we go back and say, okay, well, if everybody's messed up, if, if nobody is perfect, then how do we ever celebrate anybody, anytime. Or let's go back to David for a second. How do we ever celebrate King David? Here's the reality. The reason we can celebrate King David is because we never want to celebrate the sinful moments in his life. Instead, we celebrate how God used David in spite of his sinful moments. The reality looking historically is there is none perfect, no, not one. The Bible says that. Nobody's perfect. But we don't celebrate just perfect people. What we do is we see and we celebrate how a perfect God used imperfect people and did great things through them. This is the story of humanity. This is the story of the Bible. And this is certainly the story of America. It's not the story of a perfect nation, but it's the story of how God used imperfect people and did great things in this nation. And I would point out, oftentimes doing great things in this nation at a scale and a rate higher and larger than other nations have ever enjoyed or experienced. And there's a lot of reasons for that I'll come to in a minute, but I wanna give a little thought. Okay, again, as Christians, perspective. Hebrews 11 is known as our faith hall of fame. It's where we have heroes of the faith that we learn, right? That you have to live by faith and without faith, it's impossible to please God. So, so we need faith in our life. And so who are heroes of the faith? Well, Hebrews 11 tells us some of the heroes of the faith. You have Noah and Abraham and Moses and Rahab and Samson and David. These are all heroes listed in Hebrews chapter 11. I want you to think about these heroes for a second. Noah was a drunkard, Abraham was a liar and a cheat, Moses was a murderer, Rahab was a prostitute, Samson was a womanizer, David was a murderer, an adulterer, and a terrible father. These are the heroes. Why in the world would the author of Hebrews hold these people up as heroes? I would contend it's because God wanted to give us hope. Because even as jacked up and messed up as these people were, God used them and did great things through them. These moments of faith This is the reality of us as Christians. God is not using a perfect vessel because that doesn't exist here on this earth. But God is working through imperfect people, doing things through his power and might, not our own, and using us to do great things. And that's our prayer every morning. God, use me. God, use me to make a difference. Use me to speak into people's lives. Use me to love people. Help me. This is the reality, a broken vessel that God can flow through and use to do something. And and this is where, as Christians, again, we just have to think different. We're not looking historically to say that person wasn't perfect. In fact, even even historically, if somebody looks and says, can you believe this person did that? My answer is always yes, absolutely. I can't believe, I can? Why would you be surprised? See, the apostle Paul, if you go back to Romans, 
He says, there's things I really want to do and I never do them. And the things I never want to do and I always do them. Why? Because nobody's above the flesh. Because the flesh is something that, that, why did Paul, writing to Galatians, right? The church in Galatia, he was writing to Christians. He says, hey guys, by the way, remember, you need to crucify your flesh and walk in the spirit. Because we have to make a choice. God, help me not be fleshly. Help me walk in the spirit, right? I'm working on this. I'm never surprised by fleshly moments because everybody has a flesh. And unless you've crucified it and made it subject to the power of Jesus Christ, flesh isn't surprising. Everybody has flesh. What's more impressive though is how God uses people in spite of their flesh and does great things through them. And this again is part of the history that we have lost perspective of. But if you take someone like Noah, he's a really great example. Noah was chosen, right? We, we know Noah for the ark, okay? Genesis 6, 9, Noah was a righteous man. And that's just significant because if you remember, God was destroying everybody else, everybody, right? I mean, how bad did things have to be that God's like, yeah, everybody's gotta die right now. We're killing everybody. This is a bad day, okay? Actually, bad centuries leading up to this where things are so bad, Noah's the only one who's gonna stay. And actually, if you remember, Noah is chosen, and family's chosen, they build the ark. Animals come on the ark, it begins to rain, 40 days, 40 nights. Finally, the water recedes. The ark, the boat rests on Mount Ararat. Water is now gone, Noah gets off. God makes a covenant with Noah, known as the Noahic covenant. It's where kind of the Noahide laws are established. And as, as Noah gets off, what it says, and this is now chapter nine. It says that Noah, in verse 19 of chapter nine, that Noah was a farmer and Noah planted a vineyard. Then in verse 20, it tells us what Noah did in his vineyard. It says, Noah got drunk and he passed out naked. Now, let me just walk you through. Genesis 6, 9, Noah was a righteous man and it says he was blameless in his generation. Let me throw out, when I think of righteous and blameless, something I do not think of is someone getting drunk and passing out naked, Right? In fact, I would contend that if one of the elders here had this situation occur, probably not an elder here anymore, right? Probably, <laughs> pastor, like, that's right. <laughs> probably a little demotion going on. But I want you to think about this. Noah, was, was Noah actually blameless? No, Noah did things that were wrong. So why does the Bible say he was blameless? It actually doesn't. And the Hebrew is very good about this. But what it says is he was blameless, what? It gives context in his generation. This is interesting. It doesn't say that Noah was perfect, but in his generation, it's a comparative scale now because Noah was more righteous than everybody else around him. That's a big deal. Because if we look at today's standard and say, you know what? Noah is not gonna be a deacon or elder in the church for his behavior. Okay, so that's true. We have a different thought, different idea, different standard. But if you lived in the world at that time, you would have thought Noah is the best man on this planet. And he was. What we so often do is we judge historical figures by the standards in our current situation. And we don't take into account the context of the times in which they lived. And we say, well, because today we know this. Yes, today you know that. What about people back then? See, when we divorce historical figures from the context of the time in which they live, you don't really understand what was going on and what they did. This is not to argue that, that they were perfect, right? Noah was not perfect, but compared to the people he lived with, he was more honorable. He was more righteous. He did a better job than everybody else around him. George Washington, not a perfect man at all. But compared to everybody else around him, I would argue he was more honorable. He did a better job, right? when you judge them in the context of their time, it makes a difference for how we evaluate what happens today. People don't often do this. Or, right, one of the things we hear, even the arguments today, okay, because I, I went through all that just to give us kind of context, ideas, big picture, how we should think about this. The argument we hear so often today is that America is racist, like currently, we still are. America is racist and America was built by slavery. This is the argument that people still say today. Now, there's a whole lot we've lost in this whole conversation, a lot of context, a lot of things that are worth going back and just saying, okay, let's just, let, let's look and see what is true. We started off with a couple of verses about truth. What is actually true? Because if it's true, then America is still racist. That's really, really a problem. And as Christians, 
in general, we need to oppose racism every time we see it, right? If things are unjust, we should, we should always as Christians want to promote and support what is just. We should want to do that as Christians. That's what the Bible teaches. We should stand for what is godly, stand for what is righteous. But some of the accusations, I'm just not sure that they're actually grounded in truth. So let me walk you back and I'm gonna walk through a few things. The arguments that we've been hearing over the last couple of months is how America, everything in America was built by slaves and slavery and slavery. Now, it is true that slavery did exist in America. That's true. There's no question. And by the way, I'm not defending that either. Now, I think some of the accusations that have come out in, in the response to this are utterly ridiculous. Uh, the New York Times has a 1619 project that came out about how America is ultimately evil and America started in 1619 with a, a shipload of slaves um, that landed in Jamestown. And, and, and they do this, this very long explanation of slavery in America. Now, it is historically very inaccurate, legitimately very inaccurate. There were liberal secular professors, okay? So not Christians, not conservatives, liberal secular professors who were advisors for this 1619 New York Times project. And they told the girl in charge, that this is not historically accurate. She says, I don't care. I'm trying to shift the narrative. That's on record. When you don't care what's true and all you're trying to do is shift the narrative, well, well then we should instantly have a problem with that, okay? It gets so silly in, in some of these articles, some of what's expressed, where one of the articles, it actually says that um, candy bars should be done away with in America because they're a product of slavery, Literally. Now, how in the world are candy bars a product of slavery? Well, they say because slaves used to work in sugar plantations and sugar cane is what gave us candy. Therefore, candy is evil and racist and it's white, blah, blah, blah. So do away. Like it's, we have gone to such extremes. It doesn't even make sense. Okay. But here's where, again, that what they said with the 1619 Project, we're trying to shift the narrative. Not we're trying to be honest and truthful and accurate. We're trying to shift the narrative. So let me actually back up and show you part of what is truthful, honest, and accurate. If you look at the slave trade, first of all, America was not a world leader in the global slave trade. This is the big deal. Because as of this year, when the 1619 Project came out, they said that America was one of the big proponents of slavery, that slavery exists. In fact, there was a Democrat congressman in Washington, D.C., who from the floor of the House said that America was the one who created slavery. Created! Like, even if you're not a Christian, and so therefore you don't know like Genesis where Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers, you don't know about Exodus where all of the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt. Like, you don't know Bible, fine. Let's say you don't know the Bible. How did you miss Roman or Greek history? Like, how did you miss the slave empires from literally thousands of years ago. It, it, it makes no sense. But this was, again, this was the argument. Democrat congressman in DC said that America created the institution of slavery. Utterly ridiculous, historically inaccurate. America was not a world leader in the global slave trade. If you look at the global slave trade, specifically the North Atlantic or the African slave trade, from 1501 to 1875 are the kind of approximate dates of, of when that slave trade operated. And there's roughly 12.7 million slaves that were taken out of Africa. Now, all of this is terrible, right? This is not good. There's still a lot more to that context of how this happened because there was an intercontinental slave trade and then you had people like the Dutch and the Portuguese and there were nations, a Muslim nation in North Africa who began saying, hey, we will pay you to bring us slaves because we can sell them. And so this whole thing, as it begins to unfold, there's a lot of, of very bad things involved. But as this happens, what's interesting is that of those 12.7 million slaves, not all of those 12.7 million slaves came to America. And they have documentation. You can look up uh, slaveindex.org and they've documented it. They actually have the names of the ships that were involved. And there's actually records going back to those ships showing the roster of the number of slaves, of the crew, of where they left a port, of where they entered a port. Like there's actually documentation and there's a group of historians who have gone through this. And so what I'm gonna show you is not historically disputed. This is not a left or right. This is just historically what everybody, everybody who studies historically, everybody agrees. This is largely what happened. Of the 12.7 million slaves that came out of Africa, 43% went to Portugal and Brazil. 24% went to Great Britain. 15% went to Spain. 11% went to France. 5% went to the Dutch. 2.5% went to the United States. 1% went to Denmark. Of the 12.7 million slaves that came out of Africa. Here's why to me this is so crazy. Because I'm not defending that America was a part of this. Like, obviously, this is bad. And America was a part of something very, very bad. That's true. 
But if we're going to say America's really bad for what they did, why does nobody ever talk about Portugal and Brazil? Ever. Or the rest of the world, right? Again, there's a lot of context that we have lost in the midst of this. America certainly was a part, but she wasn't a leader in this industry. She was a participant, but again, and and I'm not defending participant. This was bad. America was part of something that was very, very bad. This was an evil moment. It's a very dark part of America's history. And there are several dark moments in our history, and I'll talk about more of those in a second. But the point is, slavery was a global condition. This was happening in every nation around the world. I was talking one time, and at the end of, of a talk, we sometimes do Q&A, and I had a professor challenge me. And he said, you can't say America's a special nation because we've done more bad than we've ever done good. I said, really? I said, well, help me understand what are all the bad things we've done? He said, well, we had slavery in America. We didn't give women rights until the 1900s. I said, okay. Let's, let's talk about both of those things. I said, if you're gonna say America's bad and the standard of measurement you use, number one is slavery. If you're saying slavery is what makes a nation bad, what nation in the history of the world never had slaves? And he couldn't come up with an answer. And I said, right, because historically, every single people group in the history of the world at some point were enslaved and at some point enslaved somebody else. This is the history of humanity. So every nation in the history of the world, by your definition, is a bad nation. I said, now, just for fun, can you name a nation where white people fought a war against other white people and at the end they freed all the black people? Like the Civil War. I said, because even if we said all nations by your standard are bad, I could still make a really good argument that America is one of the best of the bad nations because we at least fought a war to end slavery, right? Now, he's not happy about this. I said, but let's take women's rights, for example. I said, where do women have more rights than in America today? He said, well, I'm not talking about today. I said, well, I know you're not, but let's just humor me for a second. Where do women have more rights than in America today? He said, well, nowhere. I said, here's the important question. What nation gave women all of those rights before America? Nobody. America has never been a perfect nation, but America has always been one of the leaders in stopping the bad things or making improvements of stepping forward. And just like we talked about this morning, largely because of people who read and followed and studied the Bible and said, hey, we should do this based on what the Bible says. But here's the point. Slavery was not just a condition of white people in America. This was a global condition for the history of the world. And it's worth noting, even in America's role in this, America was the very first nation in the history of the world to ban the slave trade. March 2nd, 1807, Thomas Jefferson signed that law, banning the slave trade, first nation in the world, went into effect January 1st, 1808. America then became the fourth nation in the world to actually ban slavery. And this is the big deal. 1865, 13th Amendment is when slavery finally ended in America, which obviously was a very good deal. What's interesting though, is that the only nations that ended slavery before America, England did in 1833, then Denmark, then France. America was the fourth nation in the history of the world. And at that time, there were 124 nations in the world. America was the fourth nation in the world to end slavery. And even if you look today, slavery still exists in many nations of the world today at the United Nations this year. There was 193 nations who were part of the United Nations. 94 of those nations still have not passed laws banning or outlawing slavery in their nation, which is why slavery still exists. Legal slavery still exists today. It's estimated there's more than 40 million people enslaved today. There's more than 9.2 million people that are legal slaves in China excuse me, in Africa. In China, we know for sure there are 1.25 million uh, Uyghurs that are enslaved in China, and that's part of a Muslim faith. And, and those are the ones we know for sure. And actually, even if you look at, at China-made products, this is one of the things to me that is, is so bizarre and crazy when people want a virtue signal about how awesome they are and they buy their products from China. You understand there's a great probability things you buy from China were made by slaves. You just need to know that. This is just the reality of the world we still live in today. Slavery still exists and people think that, no, 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 we're too evolved. No, no, we are in America. We've gotten past that. That's not the rest of the world. One of the things, this is a, a map. If you look up global slave, uh, global slave Index, I think that's what this is. This is the map from the Global Slave Index and they have colored where slavery still exists in the world and the nations who are the worst offenders of slavery and the nations who are doing the most to try to end slavery where they are. When you look at this map, what is really interesting about this is they document the people who are doing the most to end slavery. The nation doing the very most in the world is the Netherlands. The nation doing the second most is the United States of America. America's number two in the world right now fighting slavery. America started earlier. 
America paid a higher price because of the Civil War, and America even today is doing more than any other nation in the world, arguably, to fight and end slavery. And this is the reality that today, people are not being honest with the story of America, with racism or slavery. Did, did some of this stuff happen? Yes, and, and, and we're not excusing it, but right, what did Paul say? Philippians 4.8, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, think about these things. We're not being told what's true and we're not thinking about what's true and largely we don't even know what's true so we're being misled. What I wanna do is I wanna remind us, right? We live in a nation, not that it's a perfect nation, but it is a nation where God has used imperfect people to do great things and I would point out when, when, when I have a chance to talk on college campuses or even with professors, they wanna point out all of the, the bad things America's done and America's had some really dark, bad moments. That's true, we have. We've done some really bad things in our history but what I would point out is anytime someone points an atrocity to me that America did, my question always is, how did it stop? Why did that end in America? And the reason I ask that question is because I can point every single atrocity you mentioned, I can point to the Christians, to the pastors, to the churches that God used to raise up to fight that bad thing, to end that bad thing in America. And we ended it in America almost before any other place in the history of the world, which has made America special. The abolitionists, who fought against slavery, guess who they were? By and large, they were Christians. They were pastors, right? They were churches fighting. This is the reality of our nation. Every time there were atrocities, God raised up and used people. And this is the history of our nation, right? We celebrate how a perfect God used imperfect people and did great things through them. As we finish this, this last little bit together, I wanna tell you just a couple of stories about people who were imperfect Right, jacked up people in need of Jesus, but that God used in some pretty special ways. The first guy I wanna to point to is John Morant. John Morant was a free black born in New York in the mid 1700s. Now, this is a big deal because part of what we learn in history today is that everybody who was a black in America was oppressed and abused. That's, just, that's not historically accurate or true. It is true the majority of blacks in America and early America were slaves, but not all of them were. And anyway, there, there, there's so much more to the story, but John Morant is born in New York. His dad dies when he's a kid. Uh, his mom decides that uh, at, at the end of school, he's 11 years old, by the way, when he finished school. And it was back then you had eight levels and you didn't have to go to school every year for a different level. You could do multiple levels in one year. It was based on, on content mastery. And it was not unusual for people to finish school between 11 and 14. And then you would, you would go get a trade. You would learn a job. So he finished when he's 11. His mom says, it's time for you to get a trade. It's time for you to grow up and get a job. So his sister lived in South Carolina. He sent him to live with his sister in South Carolina. He was gonna go get a trade. And his sister took him through town and showed him all the different jobs that you can go and you could right, get, be an apprentice under and you can learn so you can get a job. Well, they're walking and they pass a music school. And he heard music playing and he tells his sister, I wanna learn to play music. And she says, well, we're gonna have to write mom, but I'm pretty sure she's not gonna want you to do that, but let's ask her. So he writes mom and mom writes back and says, absolutely not. Because you can't make a living as a musician, right? You, you have to get a job where you actually can make a living, but he's so persistent writing back. Mom finally says, okay, you can go for one year, but at the end of this year, you're gonna be 12 and then you really have to find a job. Right, like it's really time to start. So he goes to his music school for a year and he becomes a prodigy musician. Masters like every instrument he gets. He is amazing at what he does, so much so that the music teacher at the end says, uh, I would like for you to stay and work for me. I'm gonna give you a job and you help me teach music. So he's coming into almost 13 years old. He's now working at this music school and the music teacher would get requests from people who were gonna do different kind of social events and they wanted musicians to come and play for them. So John Morant began to get hired as this 12, 13 year old boy now to go play these different events, social events. And as he did it, right, whether it's, it's his dance or whatever it is that's going on, he would go play. Well, he got paid for all these. And he got so many requests. He started making so much money. He wrote and he said that there was not a single thing that my heart desired that I did not get for myself. Everything I wanted, it's kind of like Solomon, right? Everything I wanted, I had, I've tried it all, I've done it all. But he starts sending money back to his mom. His mom writes him a letter and she's like, okay, that was my mistake. You keep being a musician, <laughs> right? Like forever, you're she actually says, you're making more money than the rest of the family, you keep doing it. Well, one day he's on his way to go perform a concert. He was walking through this town, he, there was a 16 year old musician with him and, and they walked past this church and inside he said, we heard this man who was 
he, the word he used was hallooing. He said, he's hallooing at the crowd. And so my friend said, hey, let's stop and listen. But we said, we're only gonna go in if we take our trumpet. And my friend said, get in the back and then blow your trumpet really loud. It's gonna scare everybody. It'll be really funny and then we'll leave. So they go in. Well, the guy who was preaching was the Reverend George Whitfield. So George Whitfield, if you don't know, was a famous evangelist from the first great awakening, like most famous evangelist in American history, like even more than Billy Graham, George Whitfield, okay? So that's this guy. John Morant gets in the back and the the room was crowded, packed, standing room only. He gets his trumpet. He said, he took a breath to blow it. And and George Whitfield pointed at him and said, prepare to meet thy God. (laughs) Well, George Whitfield was actually just quoting from Isaiah. He was actually in the middle of a sermon, but John Morant says he... He got so paralyzed and, and, and he said, then all strength left my body and I fell down and, and I was scared and I didn't know what was going on and people tried to help me up and, and I couldn't get back up and, and so they finally decided to leave me there so I had to stay there and listen to this man talk. So at the end of the sermon, George Whitfield goes back to check on John Morant and, and they pick him up and they carried him back into, into the cloakroom. They put him on this bench and as he's on the bench, they, George Whitfield comes over and, and he says, the first thing George Whitfield told me was, the Lord Jesus has got a hold of thee at last. <laughs> he then begins telling John Moran about Jesus and what's going on. And, and George Whitfield says, I have to continue on my missionary journey, but I'm gonna send the pastor to come and meet you and talk to you. Well, they took John Moran back to his sister's house and he was feeling terrible so much. So his sister called for the doctor. Like they didn't know what was happening. No idea. They called for the doctor. The doctor's like, I don't know what's going on. The pastor shows up. The pastor says, well, if you're not feeling good, let's pray for you. So he grabbed John's arms and he starts to pray. And John in his journal says, I thought he was trying to kill me. As he prayed, I just felt worse. And so at the end of the prayer, the pastor said, well, how do you feel? He said, I, I, feel, I feel terrible. The pastor said, well, we should pray again. So the pastor prayed again. And John is very visibly uncomfortable. At the end of the second prayer, the pastor says, how do you feel? And he said, I, I feel terrible. Stop praying for me. And the pastor's like, no, we need to keep praying. So he prayed a third time. The third time John said that everything changed. He said that, that where he had been feeling bad, he was no longer feeling bad. And, and then he was just full of, of, of peace. But then he had joy and his strength filled his, his, his muscles and his bones. And, and he stood up and he began to move. And, and then he began to rejoice and he began to praise God. And the pastor praised God and they're praising God together. And because now he's up and he's moving and the pastor stays with him. The pastor mentors him. The pastor gives him a Bible, teaches them about the gospel, right? What, what's all going on? And John falls so in love with God, with, with the Bible, with Jesus. All he wants to do is talk about God, Jesus, the Bible every day. But at this point, his family is not saved. So he said, as he began to talk to his family about Jesus, they were so tired of hearing it that he said, they began to call me names and they called me every name except anyone that was good. And I found no peace unless I would go to the woods. So he decided, I'm gonna go to the woods. I'm gonna find rest. I'm gonna find solace out in the woods. And so he went to the woods and decides, I'm just gonna live out in the woods where it's me and Jesus. We're gonna hang out. It's gonna be awesome. While he's in the woods, he met a Cherokee Indian. And the Cherokee Indian was very friendly. The Cherokee Indian was hunting and fishing, collecting furs. And this Cherokee says, hey, I see you have nowhere to go. Do you need help? And so John ends up living with his Cherokee for eight to 10 weeks in the woods. He learns to speak Cherokee. At the end of this time, the Cherokee says, I'm going back to my village. Do do you want to come with me? And John says, yes, I have nowhere else to go. So they go to the village. But when he gets to the village, the chief of the village says, there's no outsiders allowed. So the chief of the village orders John to be seized and orders him to be executed. Now, they were gonna execute him the following morning. So John says they seized him. His friend tried to speak up for him, but they pulled his friend away and they took John off and, and, and they were taking him out to a hut where they're gonna put him in a hut. But as he was walking, they walked him by and he says, they begin to explain to me how they were going to kill me the next morning. So they walked me by and there were these long wooden spikes. And he said that they were gonna strip me naked. They were gonna stake me out. They're gonna put the spikes in me. They're gonna light them on fire and they were gonna let them burn into me and, and then they were gonna roll me over and they were gonna put them on the other side. And, and he said, they told me if I was still alive after that, they were, gonna, they were gonna tie me up over the fire and they were gonna roast me alive. Now this is a 13 year old, it's on his journal. You can imagine a 13, like that is, that's crazy for anybody, that's a 13 year old. So they take him and they put him in this hut, they lock him in the hut. And he said, at first he was so overwhelmed thinking of how, how terrible this was gonna be. He says, but then I realized, but once I die, I'm gonna get to see Jesus. So then he was full of so much joy that he began thanking God and praising God and he had his Bible with him. So he began to praise like Paul and Silas in prison, right? He began to praise here in this hut where he's locked up. So much so that a guard opened it up and looked in and said, who are you talking to? He said, I'm talking to Jesus. 
He said, the guard looked around and said, I don't see anybody. He said, oh, Jesus is here with me. And he begins to tell the guard about Jesus. The guard says, hang on a second. I need to get somebody. The guard goes and gets some leaders of the tribe who come back and, and the guard says, tell them what you told me about Jesus. So John Morant tells them about Jesus. They get so impressed with Jesus. They're like, uh, we need to take you to the chief real quick because the chief needs to, I think if the chief heard this, like he wouldn't want to kill you. Let's go to the chief. They take John to the chief. John tells the chief about Jesus. He has the Bible. The chief ends up being so impressed that the chief turns him loose. Like, right, we're not gonna ask you anymore. Gives him this medallion to put on and it made him a prince of the tribe. The chief said, now you come and go as you want, but, but would you please stay with us? We need to learn more about Jesus. So John Morant stays living with his tribe as a full-time missionary. The whole tribe converts to Christianity. As this is going on, the chief then says, we have friends from some of these other local villages, these other tribes. Would you be willing to go and, and, and tell them about Jesus? And John's like, well, sure, I'll go. And the chief says, now, these other tribes, they're great warriors. And, and if you go to them by yourself, they might think of you kind of like we did. You're an outsider and they're not gonna, they're not gonna let you live. So in order to keep you alive, I'm gonna send my personal guard with you to be your personal bodyguard to lead you from village to village. Now, John Morant says the chief's personal guard were the 50 bravest warriors of the tribe. I've been on a lot of mission trips in my life. If someone was like, Tim, we need you to go and we're gonna give you 50 Navy SEALs for bodyguards. Like that's next level mission trip, right? I'm not sure what's about to happen, but I wanna find out. This is gonna be awesome. So John, he, he was with the Cherokee and then he goes from the Cherokee to the Katasar and then he goes to the Husaw and he goes to the Creek and he's with all these tribes weeks and weeks on end telling about Jesus and then goes to the next tribe and these tribes begin converting to Christianity. What's crazy then is at the end of roughly a year, he's now about 14 years old, 14, okay? He says, I really miss my mom. I miss my family. I, I wanna go see them. I I'm gonna go home, but then I wanna come back. I I'm gonna come back to you guys. So he goes home. He says, but at this point when he's going home, he had lived with the Indians for more than a year. And so his clothes had worn out. And so he just was wearing Indian clothes. So he had this Indian loincloth. He says, and I, I painted my chest like an Indian. I painted my face like an Indian. And I even had feathers in my hair. And so I, I looked like an Indian. So, but I, he said, I went to my home, I knocked on my door. My mom opened the door. She saw me and screamed and ran away because she thought they were under attack. So he tries telling her, oh, mom, it's me. It's really, it's okay. Well, he ends up finally calming mom down. Family comes, they reunite. Over time, he ends up leading the family to the Lord. What's amazing about the story of John Moran, the entire thing he wrote down, his missionary journey as a 13 and 14 year old boy out among these Indian tribes, crazy story. But the reason I bring this up is because John Morant, if you look at the story of his whole life, he was not a perfect man. He had many faults and mistakes, many things he did that weren't good. But the reason that he is worthy of honor and celebration is not because he's perfect, but rather he's the example of how God uses imperfect people and did really great things through them. He is the first black American to successfully evangelize Native Americans in American history. This dude is amazing. He is a leader today People don't know his story, but I can go through literally dozens of stories. Let me give you one more as we wrap up this, this kind of Sunday school time together. So John Quincy Adams, I mentioned earlier, he grew up in the middle of the revolution. When he was eight years old, his dad used to have the Massachusetts Minutemen come and they would practice their musket drills in front of the John Adams house. When he was eight years old, his dad gave him a little musket and said, I want you to go train with those guys. Now, when I was eight years old in Texas, I had a single shot bolt action 22 rifle. But let me just tell you, if my dad was like, Tim, here's the deal. I just got some green berets outside. Take this and go train. Like that is the father of the year award eternally, right? Like this is the most amazing thing ever for an eight-year-old boy to be able to do. Like, okay, next, next level, it's awesome. When he is 11 years old, he gets assigned to be part of the, the diplomatic staff. Actually, as an 11-year-old, he's a secretary to the, the diplomatic team that goes over to Paris uh, and, and technically his father was one of the diplomats. So we got assigned to his father, but he was the secretary in charge of taking notes. He's 11. I don't know the last time you looked at an 11 year old handwriting. This is the diplomatic team from America. He's taking their notes at 11. When he was 14 years old, he got to go before the throne of Catherine the Great in Russia as part of the actual, this time he wasn't secretary. He was part of the diplomatic team as a 14 year old. He was the interpreter for the team because he was already fluent in six languages 
as a 14-year-old. The guy was amazing. Well, then George Washington becomes president. Under George Washington, Washington chooses him to be a diplomat for America. Washington says he's the best diplomat America ever had. Then you have John Adams, who's his father. He again is chosen diplomat under his father. Then under Thomas Jefferson, John Quincy Adams was elected to be a U.S. senator. Then under James Madison, he again is chosen diplomat for America. He's actually the guy that negotiated the end of the War of 1812. So he does that under James Madison. Under James Monroe, he's the Secretary of State. He then became the sixth president of the United States of America. Now, what is already an amazing resume for this young man, it's interesting that after being president, he did something that no other president has ever done in the history of our nation. He went and got elected to Congress. Most people who've been president would see then becoming a congressman as a step down. But he said that there was a great evil in America that needed to be remedied. It was the evil of slavery. He went to Congress and became the leader of the anti-slavery movement. He was actually given the nickname in Congress, the Hellhound of Abolition, because this was his issue that he cared so much about. Well, in the midst of his time there, he served in Congress for 17 years after being president. He actually ends up dying in Congress, but as a congressman, every two years you have elections. So you have to be elected every two years. He's going back. Well, his, his last election, actually, let me back up. So when he's there, uh, his first election, he said that Congress was 80% pro-slavery. So the majority of Congress was in favor of slavery, but he's there to end slavery. And so he fought time and time and battle after battle after battle against slavery legislatively from the floor. And he got defeated every time. A reporter came to him one day and said, Mr. Adams, you've been here for so many years and there have been no visible signs of your success. How do you stay motivated to continue when you haven't been successful? His response to that question was really brilliant. It was based on his life motto. He said his life motto is duty is ours, results are God's. What he told the reporter about how do you stay motivated when you haven't been successful? He said, well, it's only up to me to do the right thing. It's up to God what happens after that. That's a really good answer. Well, his last term in Congress, there was a young freshman who was elected. And, and, and just like John Quincy Adams always did, he spoke so boldly against slavery. Well, this young freshman joined the anti-slavery movement. And, and, and this young freshman is mentored under John Quincy Adams. Well, John Quincy Adams has a stroke and he dies. And, and so at the end of the two-year con congressional term, you have to run for re-election. So this young freshman decides he's gonna run for re-election. Well, this young freshman did not get re-elected, but he decided he's gonna try again. He didn't get elected the second time. He then ran for U.S. Senate, got defeated. He then ran for state office, got defeated. This young freshman did not get elected again until he became the president of the United States of America. It was Abraham Lincoln. By the way, had been mentored by John Quincy Adams in the anti-slavery movement. His only term in Congress was John Quincy Adams' last term. And here's what's crazy. Abraham Lincoln is a guy who not only does the Emancipation Proclamation, he's a guy credited with, with the 13th Amendment, with all that happened in slavery in America. Abraham Lincoln had been influenced by John Quincy Adams. And as we finish, I'm gonna give you two thoughts. The first thought is John Quincy Adams fought his entire life for something that he never saw happen. And yet, little did he know that God used him to train the very person who would fulfill the mission God had given him. One of the things I can tell you, man, I remember growing up in church, I'm 38 years old and my grandfather was a pastor. He's now gone on, he's with the Lord. But I remember when I was a kid, man, we would pray so often that God would help America. They would pray for revival. They would pray so many prayers. And, and, and I look back now thinking they have no idea that the prayers they were praying for so long that, that they, would, they would be the ones to mentor their son or their grandson. Like how God would use people, the things they've been praying for, they never got to see. And this is my thought is the reality is for so often, for especially those in the room, maybe if, if your hair is more gray or more shiny, right? If you are in a place, you might not be alive in 20 or 30 years when some of these problems get resolved, but who knows but that God might use you to train and raise up the very people who might be the ones to solve and change the very course of the nation based on your mentorship in their life. That's my first thought. My second thought is, when you look at John Quincy Adams or Abraham Lincoln, both of those guys had major bad moments in their life. Abraham Lincoln, oh man, that dude had some major bad moments in their life. But the reason we can look back and appreciate what they did is because we don't look for perfect people. Instead, we look and see how a perfect God uses imperfect people and does great things through them. And this is part of the story and the history of our nation that today is largely being discounted because people say America's not perfect. Well, no, America's not perfect. No nation is ever perfect. And actually, no nation is ever perfect for one reason. 
Because there's always people in that nation, right? And people are always in need of a savior. People aren't perfect. It's the reason Jesus came. But we don't look for people to be perfect. Instead, we can look and recognize how God used imperfect people and did great things. Why America has been the most special, exceptional nation in the history of the world is because more than arguably any other nation is we had people who knew who God was and sought to be used by God and God used them to change the course of the nation time after time after time. Where we are today, we're praying that God does something, that God uses us, that God fixes the nation. God is always looking for vessels that he can flow through and operate through. And more times than not, we just need to be the ones saying, all right, God, whatever you need, I'm gonna do it. And just like John Quincy Adams, it's our job to do the right thing. It's up to God what happens after that. God has not called us to be successful. He's called us to be faithful, right? Well done, good and faithful. Our job is to show up and do what God has called us to do. We don't have to be perfect. We let a perfect God use us to do great things through us, amen? Pastor, back to you. 